and hear God's word to you this morning. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take of them to serve the Lord our God, and we don't know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt, and afterward he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor, every woman of her neighbor, for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there never has been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. After that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Let's pray. Lord God, we long to hear from you. For your spirit to remake us, to give life where there was only coldness and protection, that you would give us life and joy and hope. Lord, we long for you to do these things, and we do pray for the very things that we cannot bring about ourselves. And so we pray that you would do this by your word, by your spirit, by your power, for the sake of our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, um, kids, what do you do when the mean kid comes and bothers you again, and he never gets disciplined? What do you do after that happens? Or uh, parents, how do you handle it? when uh, the other person at work gets the promotion instead of you, or uh, the other businessman succeeds tremendously actually by cheating. Uh, what do you do when you're stuck in the same hard place in your relationship 
with your spouse or your roommate or your sibling or your parent, and they just will not admit that they're wrong. How do you handle injustice in your life? I think the fact is that we're made to long for vindication. And so I just want to think about that today. But many of us have been taught that being a Christian means that you're a nice boy or girl and you won't ever want vindication. You'll certainly never get angry and we're going to be nice all the time. We're never going to get mad. And so what do we do? We stuff and we smile and we avoid. I'll just tell you in my own life, I've noticed two things happen when I do that. Uh, the first, I don't know if you've ever played the game at the arcades, Whack-A-Mole, right? You have the, the holes and you have the little mallet and you smack down the one mole and then what happens? Another one pops up, right? You hit down this one and then it keeps coming up. And that's actually the way it works. Um, we might be willing to be kind and bend over backwards even for really mean people in our life. But what happens? We obviously begin to expect that someone else in my life is going to make up for that loss. That uh, I can be nice and sacrifice and suffer, but I'm going to expect my wife or my kids or my friends to notice, and to make up for it and vindicate. That's a lot of weight to put on people. The other thing that happens is that our hope gets stunted and weak. Our hope is weak. And the reason why is because hope can only grow when we are willing to hate evil and love what's good. You know, we've said a lot in this church, um, the opposite of love is indifference. You could say the same for hope. The opposite of hope is apathy. We numb ourselves to lost hope, and so we give up on having hope at all. And so as long as we're trying to stay cool and casual about it or happy and warm and everyone likes me and I like you, our hope will always be stunted and weak. Moses, in this passage, gets angry, and I like it. He has longing, and that's because his hope has grown from a small seed to a ferocious and courageous hope. And I just want to think about how we get this Moses in this passage from who he was. And the answer, of course, is that he has come to believe God's promises to him. It's been a process, of course, but I want to think about what God's promises are to us this morning. There's three things we'll talk about. God promises retribution. Not a Christmas card. God promises retribution. God promises vindication. But also, God invites us to hope. God invites us to hope. So, first, God promises retribution. And again, this is not the kind of thing you put on a Christmas card, but it's what's in this passage. I'll just hit these quickly, but God, much of this passage is God promising to return back onto the head of the evildoers the very same evil they've been doing. He does it in a couple ways. First, look at verses 2 and 3 in chapter 11. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they may ask every man of his neighbor, every woman of her neighbor, for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. We have to remember, these are slaves we're talking about. What it is to be a slave is to work and be deprived of your wages. That is to say, they've been working and becoming more and more impoverished. And so what's the Lord do? He makes a way to plunder the Egyptians. They take their gold and their silver. In fact, that's what chapter 12 says. They plundered them. In chapter 5, when Moses first tells Pharaoh, you need to let Israel go. Yahweh is saving them. What does Pharaoh do? I don't know if you remember this. He laughs in Moses' face. Who, who is Yahweh that I should care about what you're saying? Oh, my slaves are going to revolt. Great. 
And yet, by the end of this passage, Moses gets sassy. I only see this in verse 28 and 29. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care you never see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, Great. Great. Oh, thank you. No problem. I love it. He gets sassy in this. But what's happened is that Pharaoh still thinks that he has all the power in the world. And yet God has meanwhile been undermining Pharaoh's power plague by plague. So Moses can mock Pharaoh. But also God brings darkness as a retribution. It's not just an eclipse. This is a persistent three-day pitch darkness. That's terrifying. It's depressing, too. I mean, we're thankful the sun's shining. Praise the Lord. The sun's going to set at 4 o'clock. We can still make it. But it, let's talk about three days of no sunshine. Like darkness, sun, no sunshine. Um, that's terribly depressing. But how is that retribution? Uh, Calvin says, you know, they could probably light candles. They could probably get around in their house and do things. But what can you not do in the middle of the dark? You, you, you can't work. You can't plow fields. You can't make your slaves work when it's dark outside. And so God takes this nation who is so bent on profit and production that they're willing to enslave people. And he says, you will have three days of worklessness. You're powerless. That's terrifying. But finally, I think the most obvious way that God brings retribution is verses 4 and 5. Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle. Israel had already suffered a genocide. I don't know if you remember this in chapter one. Pharaoh commanded not simply that the firstborn die, but that every male child be killed. Every boy was slaughtered at the hands of the Egyptians. And so the Lord comes back and now avenges his people. He avenges on the Egyptians the very thing that they carried out on his people. And yet even then it's restrained. I think if we're honest, retribution feels icky, right? Do we, is payback even okay? Right? Doesn't this kind of perpetuate the cycle of revenge that we talk about all the time? And of course, in many cases it does. I'll just give you a few stories. Uh, the one is, is recent for us, uh, Rwandan and Burundian gen genocide about 20 years ago. I don't know if you remember this, but uh, after a long hits history of the Tutsi tribe having dominance and using their dominance to abuse and take advantage of the Hutus, finally the Hutus had enough. And what did they do? They killed about 800,000 Tutsis in about three months. And you know, Northern Ireland is no different. Right? All the things we saw in the 80s, now this is not an African problem, it's not a European problem. This is what happens when we take justice out for ourselves. And so isn't this passage just the same? Well, actually, no, it's not. Because here's the big difference. Israel is not plotting her own revenge. In fact, Moses, I don't know if you remember this in chapter 2, he tried to, get, tried to bring justice, tried to get revenge. He saw an Egyptian beaten an Israelite, and what did he do? He went and murdered the Egyptian. Right? I'm going to bring justice. And of course, as a result, Moses has to run for his life because Pharaoh wants vengeance. 
But that's not what's happening here. God himself is bringing payback. God is intruding on behalf of Israel as the judge, coming in from the outside. And he does this both because he loves them, but also because this is the way that God defeats evil. We said back in chapter 5, God defeats evil by exposing it. We need to add to that. He defeats evil by heaping back onto evil's head all the things evil itself has done. This is all over the Psalms. Let me read this to you from Psalm 7. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull violence descends. Every plague in Exodus is a small preview of this final retribution of the Passover. But even the Passover is restrained. It's a watered-down preview of what the Lord will do on Judgment Day. The Lord will bring retribution for every evil act. He will pour back onto the heads of those who have done evil the very things that they have done. And so the Lord will come in from the outside and put an end to evil by bringing retribution. But what about Israel? Aren't they angry and hungry for revenge? Well, of course they're angry. And you see it in this passage, right? Moses gets ticked. But the only thing we see him and Israel do is cry out to the Lord. This is chapter 2. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Crying out in grief is very different from grasping power to get vengeance. But how can you do that? How can you wait and cry out for grief and not become embittered? The big difference between Rwanda and Exodus is hope. Hope is the big difference between vindictiveness and vindication. And that's our next point. God promises to vindicate Israel. He gives them a hope of vindication. God shows Israel that he hears their cry and cares for them by already starting to vindicate them in a number of ways. He gives them little previews of what's coming. He gives them distinction. So he brings darkness on Egypt, but he shines what? His loving favor, his joy, his attention on his people Israel right next door. Verse 7 of chapter 11 says, But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes the distinction between Egypt and Israel. God will set apart his people for safety, for his care, especially in this last plague, as we'll hear soon. But he also gives them bounty, right? Gold and silver are given to them as if they had just won a war, right? That's what you do when you kill the other guys. You take their stuff. But what happened? It was given to them freely. They were given piles of silver and gold freely because the Lord had already worked this fear and respect into the Egyptians' hearts. But also the Lord gives honor. Uh, look at verses, uh, verse 3. And the Lord gave the, people of, uh, gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt. 
in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. This is the Moses who had to run for his life because he was rejected by his people and wanted for murder and made a career of being a desert loner. Now he has become an honored, honored man. The Lord has heaped honor where there was shame. And all of this culminates in a power reversal. Look at verse 8. Moses says to Pharaoh, And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. Moses moves from asking to be freed to announcing that they will leave. Instead of Moses asking, Pharaoh and his servants come and beg Moses and Israel to leave. And so when the Lord acts, no one is going to speak against Moses and Israel because the Lord has honored them. God raises Israel from the dust and honors her in front of her oppressors. He heaps on bounty and distinction and honor and attention to the shame of their oppressors. And this is exactly what we see in Jesus' life, but with a major twist. Because Jesus hasn't brought retribution yet. He suffered it. All of our evil, all the things that we deserve retribution for, which should be poured back on our heads, Jesus bore. Jesus Jesus, who did no wrong, who did not scheme evil, had our violence, had my violence, my retribution given to him, poured out on him. And so his body was broken and not mine. His blood was shed for my crimes. And yet he did all of this so that he could share his vindication with us. His honor that he received from the Father, he shares with us, his people. And so in the place where he was mocked and put a, had a crown of thorns put on his head, God has risen him as the king, not just of the Jews, but of the universe. He has crowned him as the cosmic king. And where he was wrongly accused and misunderstood, he has been heard by his father for his grief and his piety. And now Jesus stands as the high priest. That means God listens to him face to face. Where he was beaten and killed... He has risen from the grave with a life that can never be touched by death again. And so Jesus, his resurrection is the vindication of his whole life. God says to him and to us, he was right. He was right. And yet Jesus suffered our retribution to share that vindication with the guilty. And that's the good news for us this morning is that that's our vindication too. We have a great hope. We get to share in the vindication of Jesus. In every place that there was shame, he brings honor into your life. In every place there was despair, he brings real hope. In every place there was death, he gives his own life and light and victory. And in every place there was suffering, he brings abundance. Uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism has a few things to say about this. This is not the kind of book, uh, this is one of our doctrinal standards. You don't read this to stay awake at night, right? It's not necessarily the most stimulating, but it has beautiful things to say on this point. This is question 38. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? This is beautiful. Listen to this. 
At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the judgment day and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. We will be acquitted. We've touched on this already, but it's, it wears, uh, it's worth emphasizing. All of the crimes we've committed against God and each other will be washed away and forgiven because Jesus has already suffered that retribution. And so that means that on the last day, God will stand you up before the whole cosmos and look on you with his full gaze, his holy and bright searching gaze and will say to you, you are forgiven and I am delighted. It is my joy to forgive you. I am delighted you are here. That's what acquittal means. But the other part's easy to miss too. We will be openly acknowledged. This is what Jesus promises in Matthew 25 when he says, you will be welcomed with this word, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter your master's rest. This is the same promise in Revelation 19 that all the saints will be dressed in the righteous deeds and that God will shower honor and praise on his people as they come to him like a bride adorned for her wedding day. We will be the object of God's open pleasure and delight and honor. Oh, Jesus. The Lord will honor us. That's what that means. We'll be openly acknowledged. What is the Lord honoring us for? How could we get a reward for anything? And what did Israel do to get a reward like the wealth they got? Well, there's two answers. One is that God honors the righteous deeds we've done, but it was Christ in us that produced those good deeds in the first place. And so that doesn't stop God from loving and praising those same good deeds. God so graciously rewards us for his own grace at work in us. It's grace on grace. Grace on grace on grace. It's like grace on cocaine. It's just out of control. Grace is just bursting through because God is so gratuitously kind. That's the first answer. The second answer is that he acknowledges our suffering. And that is the burden of what's happening here in Exodus 11. His people have suffered for a long time. And they've been crying out, how long, Lord? And wondering if he had been listening. Have you heard me? He has heard you. He's heard you. He has counted every sacrifice you've made for his kingdom. For another person, he has watched and documented every miserable day you've endured. Every day you've walked with another person through suffering, through their suffering, through yours, he has heard your groans as you have lost babies as you have lost spouses, as you have had spouses and others desert you, the Lord has listened because his spirit is actually in you, groaning along with you. So yes, we will be acknowledged. And on the last day, he will stop and he will look at you in the eyes and behold you and say, I know what you've been through. It was so much. It was so much. 
come. Come eat. Come dine with me. Come take of the tree of life. The Lord will shower honor on us on the last day. That's the promise. That's the good news. The Lord will vindicate us with his honor and glory out of sheer grace. If we're honest, though, it still feels like we're talking about someone else. I'm convinced that the Lord is going to honor Irene Newell. (laughs) But me? I'm, I'm one of the people who deserves retribution. I don't, I don't know that this is actually what I'm looking forward to. Do I get to share in Jesus' vindication? And that leads us to our last point. God invites us to hope. But we have to be honest. Hope is hard. Because hope always makes us vulnerable. Hope always makes us vulnerable. It's scary to hope. Uh, I remember in sixth grade, we had our first school dance of the year which middle school is already miserable enough, and then have a school dance was on top of that. I mustered up the courage to go and ask this girl to the dance, and I I think she had someone else she was going to the dance with. So I think she was kind to me, and that was nice. But So I went with my friends, and, you know, middle school dances are kind of classic because all the boys are on one side and all the girls on the other side. Even if you ask the girls to the dance, you don't hang out with her. Um, And I was hanging out with my friends, and I saw this girl that I asked. She She was with a group of friends. I was like, all right. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go and ask her. And so uh, I walk up, tap her on the shoulder. She turns and faces me, and I'm about to say, will you dance with me? And my friends, who must have been jealous, came up behind me and pantsed me. (laughs) I don't know if you know what pantsing is when they pull your pants down. We were sagging in those days, so it was a little easier to pants people. Was it just another middle school prank? Sure. That's, that's left a mark on me, though. Right? It's still embarrassing to tell that story. The fact is, is that hope exposes you, and evil is always standing right by your side to seize on the opportunity, to take advantage of you. And so we become accustomed when we see the call to hope to draw back because we anticipate that the moment we make ourselves vulnerable to hope, evil will take advantage of us and we'll be ashamed again. And yet we need hope precisely in the areas we are most afraid of. So what do we do? How does God intend us to grow into hope? Well, I'll just three things and we're going to close with these. First, the promise of retribution makes space for us to be angry. Because our anger is actually not about what we can demand. It's not about our rights. It's not about what we're entitled to. Our anger derives from God's anger. We are angry at evil in the world because God was angry first. And the fact that we have sinned doesn't change the fact that evil has been done to us. And God is angry at the ways that you have been sinned against. And it's good for you to be angry too. It is good for you to be angry before the Lord. I'm not encouraging you to go home and rage at each other. But I am saying that if we would hope 
we have to give up the temptation to stuff our anger. If you would have hope, you must be willing to enter anger, and yet it's messy, isn't it? Anger is always messy. It's always uncontrollable, and it really quickly slips from being angry about the evil in the world, and that's happened to my friend, and that's happened to me, to being angry that the world is not going my way. That's a danger. I don't want you to be angry like that. But when we do not enter into our real hurts, our real angers, we rage at other people because we have not brought our pains and our hurts to the Lord and and been angry before him. Oh, Lord, I hated the way I was treated that day. I hated it. Have you ever prayed that way? You need to. Because if Moses and David and every other figure in the scriptures and Jesus himself can hate evil and pour out their hearts before the Lord, that that is exactly where you are called to be. And that also makes space for the second thing, which is the promise of vindication makes space for us to long, to long. We are free to long for better. And that's what we've been working on during Advent. I don't know if you know, I had a secret agenda. I do this. We've been working on longing for what the Messiah has promised. Longing for the peace that he said he would bring, for the light into the darkness, for the hope and the healing and the life. And Jesus himself, we've been working on longing and being free with our longings. And so that's because we are called to be a people who long for life where there was only death, hope where there was so much cause for despair, and honor where we have been mocked. We're called to long for dignity where we have been stripped. We're called to long for fruitfulness where we have been told you are worthless. And all of this is the very thing the Lord loves to bring about. It is his delight to bring those very things to us. And so lastly, we can hope because Jesus has been down this road already. And he's given us others in the body of Christ who have been down this road or or actually who are currently on this road. So our suffering, here's the deal. Every person I visit in the hospital, every person who I talk to who's been suffering through something always has at least one thing in common. Our suffering always feels lonely. Suffering always makes you feel lonely. Who can know? Who can possibly bear to know what I've suffered through? God knows. Jesus, oh Jesus, he knows. Because he has suffered it too. And he has actually carefully tracked the evils you have endured. I don't know if you know this. Let me read this to you from Psalm 56. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. When we have been angry and long before the Lord and entrusted our tears to him, we can hope that he will vindicate us as well. I can't help but think of this last year in our community. Last two years, really, and even the last month has been gut-wrenching. 
But I just want to encourage you as we go into the new year, we have reason to hope. Let me encourage you to take the risk of hoping. I don't know if you watch uh, Stranger Things. It's a fun TV show on Netflix. Uh, terrifying. Don't let your kids watch it. But really well done. In the end of season two, there's this boy, Dustin, who uh, is just this sweet, earnest goofball. Um, and there's this school dance. And he comes up to this girl. Do you want to dance with me? No. He does this three times, gets rejected three times by different girls. And he goes and sits down and starts crying, of course, on the side. But eventually, Nancy, who is way older and way out of his league, finds him and dances with him and showers him with praise on the dance floor in front of everyone. That's good. That's a brief glimpse of the honor the Lord will give to us, of the attention and kindness the Lord intends for us. The Lord may have us wait for a long, long time in our life, but he will act. Maybe this week, maybe this year, we don't know, but he will one day vindicate and heal us. He will one day actually bring joy in the places that have been aching for it for so long. He will bring clarity where there's been only confusion and doubt. And he will not simply free us, but actually send us out richer, wiser, better resourced, and more powerful than when we began. And we know he will do it and keep his word because he himself went through the same thing on his own cross. And so this is a God worth trusting and praising and hoping in. Let's go to him now. Lord Jesus, we entrust ourselves to you. Lord, we have so much that weighs on us. This last year has been difficult. And so we pray even now that you would teach our hearts what it is to hope, to entrust ourselves into your care, and to long for your presence. Lord, do these things in us by your spirit, we pray. Amen.